Specializing in the finest assortment of oboes, clarinets, bassoons, and their accessories, RDG Woodwinds serves musicians around the world. Their employees are all professional musicians who have a deep knowledge of the products that they sell. RDG's repair shop has an international reputation with a combined 100 plus years of service among the five repair technicians. Plain and simple, RDG provides excellent products and fabulous customer service. Visit them at rdgwoodwinds.com. They look forward to working with you. Founded by Logan Esterling, Reed Design is pushing the boundaries of oboe and English horn reed making. They take the knowledge they've collected from hundreds of reeds and, with the power of machine learning, derive patterns and trends that accurately predict the characteristics of finished reeds while early in the sorting process. The result is quality reeds with characteristics you can count on. Using their products will save you valuable time and let you get back to what you love, making music. Visit www.readdesign.io to learn more. That's R-E-E-D-E-S-I-G-N dot I-O. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish. A podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. good we are back in pullman you got your new bed yes it has been an event field couple of days i literally texted your husband today to throw a sandwich at you through the window well so we that needs some context i think (laughs) we as you know we've been in valparaiso indiana for the lutheran summer music program yeah which ended on Sunday. We drove all day Sunday, 18 hours, 12 hours on Monday. We're finally back on Monday and have some home improvement projects we're still wanting to get done. And my in-laws will be here on Tuesday of this coming week. So the window in which, I mean, technically they could be done after, but like, I want them done before. (laughs) So today, yes, our new bed, which we ordered in March, <laughs> was delivered. Don't know what took so long. It's like, did you have to like create it cell by cell? Exactly. Was this like an original design? It, I thought it was just in the store, but whatever. It's a live and, edge bed. <laughs> and we got new flooring in our bathroom which was very necessary and um i did not know i thought when they installed flooring that they would just kind of like put stuff around like cut around the toilet like they cut around the walls they don't they took our toilet out (laughs) and we were like okay so our toilet's in our bathtub then they get done they go it's all finished and go oh it looks beautiful and chris goes and will you be putting the toilet back and they're like no we don't do that and so we had to call a plumber and be like, will you put our toilet back? Because he's like, you can do it yourself. And it's like, listen, I've got three degrees in bassoon. My husband <laughs> has three degrees in percussion. We do not need to be schlepping this toilet 
they're like, you just need a wax ring. I'm like, I don't know what that is. No, that is a project that needs just a little more prep. Yeah. Then go ahead and put your toilet back. So right now my toilet is in the bathtub, which sounds like a figure of speech. (laughs) It sounds like a curse. Like, may your toilet be in your bathtub. May your toilet be in your bathtub. (laughs) So I was like in my office enjoying IDRS virtual symposium. And it's my office and then the bathroom is right next to it. So I was stuck in there. And so (laughs) I couldn't get out. They were like blogging the way. And I was like, I'm hungry. It's lunchtime. You're texting us on the group thread like i'm so hungry and we were like chris fix it (laughs) i did eventually get lunch but my toilet is still in my bathtub so that's really stressful i it's okay do you have more than one toilet yes we do okay that's fine that's fine okay i was worried for a couple of minutes (laughs) welcome to toilet talk your podcast for all toilet related <laughs> it's a spin-off of weather talk yeah whatever it was last time <laughs> should we talk about something double read related uh, sure so my world premieres of the complete commissions that i've uh my friend jonathan yarrington and i have been working on for what feels like a bajillion years premiered today yeah speaking of the idrs virtual symposium oh so please watch it because it took so long (laughs) to put this project together (laughs) and uh you know sending love and blessings to jonathan because he's on vocal rest right now so i recorded it with a fantastic usm alum named david walker who sounds incredible so please go listen to it. Uh, It's for oboe and tenor. Um, We chose that because Jonathan and I love performing together, but really the only major work that we have that isn't like very gendered (laughs) (laughs) is the Von Williams. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, we were like, well, how many times can we perform the Blake songs? And then we're looking at all the rest of the repertoire and it's like, well, I don't really need you to be singing about like motherhood and pregnancy (laughs) you know what I mean like a lot of it is like for oboe and soprano and then if you try to take it to another high voice it's pretty gendered Mm -hmm. so we commissioned three other composers uh Tanu Korvitz from Estonia Josh Burrell who's a friend of mine from uh Florida State who's just a fabulous composer mm-hmm. and uh, a friend of ours, Jackie Chayushu, who teaches mm-hmm. at UW Eau Claire to take William Blake poetry. So it's all inspired by the Von Williams Blake songs, mm-hmm. but take poetry of their choosing and set it. So we have three very different brand new works for oboe and high voice. You could do it with soprano. I'm sure. But it's for oboe and tenor. And uh, it's really, they're beautiful works. They're fun and they're difficult. Um, but I don't know. Tell me what you thought. 
What struck me was how creatively these composers approached the relationship between oboe and voice, which oh, I would yeah. guess could be kind of a, a complex thing because mm -hmm. they're both high sound and high, high voice. sounding single yeah. note. And as I texted you, you know, sometimes it was a matter of blending and creating a new homogenous tenno or over, you know, homogenous sound. And sometimes you were in counterpoint and sometimes you you were accompanimental to the voice. And especially in Chayu's piece, the creative use of extended techniques. Oh, my God. I know so additive like it was it's never just like here's a technique yeah for the sake of it it always yeah. enhances what she's composing there were several times that i found myself smiling because there's just a lot of charm there's that one laughing song that starts mm -hmm. off like um that literally <laughs> sounds like the two parts are laughing together and so i was just like well you know if i was composing for this instrument pairing i'd probably feel a little stuck and how these composers approached it in this really, you know, diverse way was was really cool. I was definitely engaged the entire time. Oh my god, that's awesome. Thank you so much for watching, by the way. <laughs> I really miss in person conference where you know, you perform for an audience and you get the instant feedback because you know, you know me, I need my cookies. She's a Enneagram six. <laughs> And she needs that feedback or she will fill in the blanks in her own head with all uh -huh. that, you know, <laughs> catastrophizing. It was so bad. People threw their laptops <laughs> in their bathtubs along with their toilets. <laughs> if you don't get a chance to watch it during the conference this week, all of those recordings are going to go on my website, which is going to, I, I copied you, Jackie. Jackie just updated her website. I am also updating my website. And if you are good at pattern spotting, you'll see it looks a lot like Jackie's website. <laughs> well, I updated my website for a specific reason. Can I bring you in on a little inside ball? I... And I actually alluded to this. This is a project that has been several years in the making because I would mm -hmm. start and then I'd just like get nervous and back away from the ledge. And then I'd start and I'd get nervous and back away from the ledge. But I have begun to explore the wonderful world of composing. Um, I've always had like conceptions of pieces that I wish were written. Like, mm -hmm. oh, I wish someone would write a piece that was structured like this, about this, and that sounded kind of like this and did this type of thing. And uh, yeah, around, I don't know, three, four years ago, around the time we started the podcast, I remember mm -hmm. being like, well, what if I wrote it? Mm -hmm. And then I would kind of like dabble in something and I'd be like, oh, this is dumb. I hate it. And just push delete. And um, as a result of, you know, the conversations about, diversifying repertoire but also in the meg quigley group we were having lots of talks about like pre-college level repertoire and something mm -hmm. that was accessible to younger players i was like i'm just gonna do it and i ended up writing a piece that is not at all accessible to high school players so i'm told <laughs> whoops but I did <laughs> feel inspired to actually like sit down and put my concept on paper. Um, so it's called Dance Suite. It's for unaccompanied bassoon. 
and it takes as its structure the powwow dance complex so it's a bit of me imbibing my yakima identity into the work and each piece is inspired by a different dance of the powwow so we have grand entry uh, grass dance, men's traditional, fancy feather, etc. There are six. And I kind of, shout out to the oboists, modeled it a bit after the Benjamin Britten metamorphoses. How oh, like, yeah. you know, sometimes you all will play the whole thing. Oftentimes a recital will be like, oh, here's two or three. Yeah. Or if it's a competition, maybe like you just want character one. pieces. Yes. And you can yeah. kind of mix and match as much as you want. I really loved the idea of that, especially with unaccompanied playing. Mm -hmm. And so by the time this episode is released, so will have the piece. And I'm I have to tell you, I'm so nervous. I feel so yeah. vulnerable. I feel so figuratively, artistically naked. And I hope, I hope people like it. I'm very proud of how it turned out. I, I worked on it really hard. I ran it by several colleagues and did series of revisions, trying to make sure. And they're like, LOL intermediate. <laughs> that was the biggest piece of feedback. They're like high school students. Uh, it's a cool piece, but it's not high school. So yeah, I just, I hope it, I hope it's well received and I hope that people like it and maybe, you know, feel so inclined to humor me and consider playing it. And if, oh if you God, are so cool. interested in checking it out, even if you're oboist, just want to listen to it, um, you can find that on my website. And so I had to switch over to Squarespace to host all of the stuff. Oh my gosh, girl, I'm now in like ASCAP. I know how to register the copyright oh, cool. through the US government. I learned all sorts of things in the process of composing and preparing to self-publish this piece. So um, if nothing else, I gained all those skills. And if nothing else, I was able to call you and be like, can you fix my website? Because you're on Squarespace now. And I could. So, you know, <laughs> hopefully by the next episode, my <laughs> nerves will have been quelled and my toilet will be out of my bathtub. Barton Kane offers a huge variety of GSP Kane. Leave the Kane processing to them. Use coupon code DoubleReadDishRocksMyWorld for free shipping on your next Barton Kane order. www.bartonkane.com Chemical City Double Reads is a full-service double read shop specializing in the sale of instruments, cane, accessories, and sheet music. Double Read Dish listeners can enjoy free shipping with code DRDISH, all caps, no spaces. Visit them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or online at chemicalcityreads.com. We are so happy and excited to welcome Ben Hoadley to the podcast, bassoon teacher at the University of Auckland, plus about a hundred other titles. So Ben, welcome to the podcast. And you can you please tell us everything that you do? Um, hello, it's so great to, to be here. Um, so I taught bassoon and chamber music and whatever else they, they require at the time. Um, at the University of Auckland School of Music since about 2007, I think, when I first came back to live in, in New Zealand. Um, 
And then I've also taught bassoon at the Sydney Conservatorium at the University of Sydney in Australia and currently acting associate principal with Orchestra Victoria in Melbourne, um, which is the full-time orchestra in Melbourne, Australia, that does all the opera and ballet. And they also have a, a, a season, a concert season. Um, so that's a lot of traveling around between Australia and New Zealand, which I've done pretty, pretty much constantly for the last decade. Um, so when people ask me where I actually live, um, I say, I used to feel like I lived at the international airport. <laughs> that's but that's changed now with, with, um, with last year with COVID, I spent, um, the, the longest that I'd ever been in one place. And of course, doing teaching with, um, by Zoom and uh, Skype. Now the travel between Australia and New Zealand has been resumed. So I've been over a couple of times, which has been lovely to catch up with, with everyone. But I look back on my life of, of um, going back and forth, maybe every couple of weeks, and I, I, I really don't know how I had the energy to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Staying home felt like such a luxury for so long with COVID. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the, the nice thing is that with the, now that Zoom teaching has become more mainstream, I don't, I'm not going to be able, I'm not going to need to come back for my students every week. Oh, the unexpected Actually, benefits of a global pandemic. Yeah, but it's definitely, you need to um, see them in person regularly. The Zoom is a great way to keep it going sort of um, in between, but you, I, I really missed seeing them in person. It's no substitute at all for, for um, just being able to, to hear them and also read, um, obviously. There's so much which we took for granted about seeing each other, in about having live lessons, that I think everyone appreciates that a lot more now. Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Ben, we usually like to start by asking our guests how they began their journey into this weird and wonderful thing that we do. So could you tell us how you came to the bassoon as a young person? Um, well, I grew up in, in Auckland, in um, New Zealand, um, like right near the, the beach. It was a lovely lifestyle. And both my parents were very interested in music and mum, she played opera, opera a lot and dad had, rec they had records of you know, Tchaikovsky symphonies that they listened to and things. So I grew up being exposed to classical music and also we went to the symphony and they had, they have these, um, this balcony at the Auckland Town Hall where the symphony plays where you can, the balcony actually goes over the orchestra. So I would always want to sit um, right at the, at the edge so I could overlook um, the woodwind section. 
I was very fascinated with the wind instrument, probably visually. I think they, you know, the bassoon was very, it was just so unusual. Um, so I think these poor people, like who I've, you know, some of whom I've actually went on to, to work with, <laughs> remember this like t- this child kind of staring at them for the whole for the whole concert. <laughs> so I was absolutely fa- fascinated with the the contrabassoon. I just had a poster of a contrabassoon when I was about nine, and said, so "This is the instrument that I want to play." Wow. And someone said, well, you can't really play the contra, but you have to play the bassoon first before you can play the contra. I wonder if anyone's actually, actually done that, only played contra. We have not come across that in 112 episodes. Mm. So it would be an interesting, interesting, <laughs> um, interesting survey. Do you have um, any so nine-year-olds I- that you know that you could uh, experiment with? Okay, well, you'd be, I mean, they have a mini, mini bassoon, so I wonder if they could have a mini contra. Is a mini contra a bassoon? Well, yes. <laughs> oh, no. no. I don't know. <laughs> There's a whole, I feel a whole, a whole new, new thing. But, so, but of course, in, um, in Auckland, you know, we didn't, we didn't have um, mini bassoons at the time. Um, and it was just very hard to to get a a instrument. I begged my my parents for a bassoon. I think I was probably yeah one of the only children who sort of I I didn't come to it because someone someone suggested that I you know I was playing another instrument. I actually really really wanted to play bassoon. Were they like, and, of all the instruments in the orchestra, you want to play the bassoon? Well, I remember someone, because I played p- piano. I mean, I did piano to uh, a reasonably high level and composed. I was always composing little pieces. And and um, I tried to write. I remember when I was about 10, I, I wrote, I tried to write. I said I was told everyone I was writing an opera. And I did a few <laughs> pages. Then after uh, later on, I heard that my piano teacher at the at the time would have all her friends round and talk about this very like ostentatious child that she had taught. Um, and apparently, I was a nightmare to teach. <laughs> I'd start playing the piece and then start improvising into a totally other piece and. <laughs> Um, yeah, I was in, the, and she would just ha- she would bring have her friends around that and and sort of tell these wild stories about her her difficult student. <laughs> <laughs> Do you still have that opera? Do you I still need have? To, actually, I fa- I found it because last last year um, we had and I was I went to my parents' house with all and had all this free time and had an epic clean out. Mm-hmm. It was amazing what I what I uncovered, and actually, you know, it was pretty. It was pretty good for a for that age. I mean, not Mozart, but um, you know, Mozart would have had written ten operas. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I wouldn't produce it now. <laughs> I think um, I got a bassoon when I was. A, 30, uh, for my 13th birthday, it was a lark bassoon. It, I knew that it was in the, that my mother had it 
in her office, but I wasn't going to be able to get it for another until the birthday. So I would sneak in and play it um, oh. when there was no one home. Um, God knows what read that came came with it that was in the case. But I remember someone say because I was doing, I did a lot of singing. I sang as a boy soprano singer in a, a lot of productions around, you know, choral concerts and so forth around Auckland. And one teacher saying, oh, the bassoon, it's, you know, it's not a good, it, it's not a melody instrument. You sh it's not a good, it, you, you'll get bored not, not having to play, being able to play solos all the time. And I just think that was a very discouraging thing to say, because what I love the most about the bassoon is that you can do everything. That it's not just, you can do the, the amazing solos, you can do, I mean, you're part of, so integral to the texture. I think bassoon has probably the most roles in the orchestra of any instrument. It's yeah, the I most agree. useful. Mm -hmm. And also the thing that I love the most about is playing continuo. Mm. I couldn't imagine not playing continuo, Baroque continuo. I mean, I feel, I feel sad for the oboist that you I mean you have the amazing solo <laughs> but that that um and with Bach and uh, I get envious of that sometimes but then I, I don't think, no, think I we're get... sad that we don't play continuo so <laughs> <laughs> well, I can see what this teacher this teacher was saying about thinking that the bassoon was only ever going to be a, a, um in that supportive role, but I, I'm, I hope, I think that was one thing that that led me to doing a lot of solo performances when I was a high school student. I did competitions and little recitals and things because I, I just thought this, this can be a, a solo instrument. Um, it wasn't so mainstream. There weren't many people doing bassoon recitals in, in at the around Auckland at the time. What happened next? You started. You you suspected you had a bassoon. You snuck into your mom's office to play the bassoon. You fell in love with it. Uh, what what um, inspired you to pursue a career as a musician? Well, Amit, after learning bassoon sort of for a couple of months they needed someone for the youth orchestra i mean there were some good players i mean some excellent bassoon teachers and players around um auckland but just not not they always needed a bassoon for whatever orchestra or show i think i did west side story after playing for a couple of months, Oof. which was just outrageous. Um, I hate <laughs> to think what the, um, I mean, I thought I was great. I sounded great. But, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> but you know, I sort of spent a whole a whole summer with it because um, my birthday was just right before the summer. So I kind of was self-taught. Self for, and then coming back in the fall and think, oh, I, you know, I have a bassoon and ready to be hired. Um, but no, I just, it, it, it took off and I really, it was 
after trying a lot, going through of quite a few instruments like oboe and clarinet and French horn, I mean, it was obvious that bassoon was going to be the my instrument. And as soon as I realized that you could, that it was something that you could do as a career, there was never any choice that that was what I was going to do. You spent some time in the United States, which seems like a very big leap. You're basically crossing the entire world. Can you tell us what that experience was like? Um, well, I had gone to Sydney um, after high school. I left um, Auckland and gone to Sydney, Australia, to study at the conservatorium. Mm-hmm. Um, so looking back, that was that was young to to do. I mean, I I went to a huge Sydney is a huge city, and going there um, as an eighteen year old, I. Um, yeah, I didn't think, I mean, I was very, I had very supportive parents, you know, I'd worked hard, I had some um, scholarship money, and, um, you know, but it was a big investment for, uh, on the part of my, my family, and also me leaving, leaving home at such a young age. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd had, and that was, a, that was, they were amazing years for me, I don't regret that at all. They were my, my, the years that I look back on with the most fondness. And that's, it's wonderful to now be back and working in, in Sydney. I just, I love that, that city so much. Um, but I've always wanted to go to the States because my father is American. He's mm-hmm. from, from Indiana. I had American citizenship and my parents had met when my mother was doing a, um, a doctorate at um, Washington University in St. Louis, where mm. she met Dad, who was a professor. And they'd come back to New Zealand. So culturally, it was, I was used, I knew what I was, what I was going into because we'd had, I'd, got, I'd been there a few times. But I, I was very, uh, you know, I was desperate that I was going to study in, in the United States. That sort of, or that was what I wanted to do. So I um, decided that I wanted to go to study and I had this really, this real um, thing about going to Boston, going to New England. I just loved, I liked the, the idea of Boston and, and I hadn't even been there. <laughs> so that's where I decided I was going to go. I mean, it's amazing. It's it's just amazing now when I when I think about it that these um, my students who have gone who are going to do overseas study they have Zoom lessons with with um, with lots of different teachers. Um, they apply to lots of different places, and then they go around and sort of um, decide what where they would like to go or audition, you know, and have backup schools and, and things. Um, and of course people were doing that in, in my, my generate, my day, although there was no internet, we actually had to write to school. <laughs> and so, I mean, imagine me writing, I sent away to, um, I mean, even a phone call, I mean, you couldn't. Uh, make it was a, expensive. A, yeah, no, no. So I remember writing to sort of maybe 
six or seven schools. So there was Juilliard, you know, NEC, um, Eastman, all the schools that I knew the name of to get syllabuses. And of course, what you, what I missed out on was some of these, these schools that maybe weren't famous like Juilliard, or, but they had an amazing bassoon teacher or an amazing right. program. I think that's what's different now. I, I, um, I mean, I absolutely loved NEC. It was amazing for me, but I think if I was at the same stage now, I would look into some of these schools in smaller places, mm -hmm. maybe with a full-time professor. But of course, the, you know, then I sort of, um, you relied on what people told you. Someone said, well, in Boston, um, there's NEC. I didn't know even that BU had a, a music program or Longy or all these other schools in, in Boston. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I thought, well, you know, I'll go to and I'll study with the principal bassoon player of the Boston Symphony, which is Richard Savoda, who was my teacher. Mm -hmm. And um, I also had um, Rick Ranty and Greg Henniger. So they sort of taught as a team, um, which was wonderful. And I thought, well, they're in the Boston Symphony. They have to be, they have to be good. You know, you know, there'll be no, no question that they're not amazing you know I just went there um you know completely uh, I didn't apply for any other school full of confidence I love it <laughs> <laughs> I sent a cassette it was a tape I sent a tape of I don't know what was on it the Hindemith bassoon scenario and some, <laughs> some dreadful some horrible excerpt <laughs> anyway um they gave me a full scholarship <laughs> That's amazing. So I started, and actually, it's it's interesting that you said that there was it was a culture like a different culture, because I mean, obviously they speak English, you know, so many things were were similar, but actually, looking back, it really was a very different culture. Um, Did you find that the differences were in social interactions and getting around? You know, like the living part of your time there. Or were there a lot of musical differences also? Um, this was the, the interaction I found. Uh, I mean, I'd had a sort of um, degree of freedom in Sydney. So the drinking age is very young. It was 18. Mm -hmm. um, people, the interaction with the professors was what I meant there would be, you would go and have a maybe on Friday, go to the pub and there'd be professors there that you would talk to um, and they were very important time you know to share knowledge you know share get and have um, you know get advice in a sort of more social way not just at the lesson mm -hmm. um, and I found it was more conservative much more conservative sure. generally I think that's how I would describe that and also there wasn't that the same interaction with the students and faculty was more, you know, you'd call your teacher by their, you know, their proper name. Would you agree with that? A hundred percent. But I remember going to NEC and thinking, oh, I'd, I'd um, you know, I'm not good. I shouldn't really tell anyone that I'm, I'm gay until I get to, until I get to know them, you know, because they might be, you know, conservative, you know, but then I really, you know, got there and they had, 
uh, I mean, it was obvious that it was very accepted there. I sort of feel like I caught the the edge of that and things were really beginning to change in Boston. In Boston, the attitude was, I thought it was, it was more open than in, than in Sydney mm-hmm. at the time. But so many things in Sydney were, were, were more, I had more freedom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that makes a lot also, of sense to me. Now, musically, we didn't have the access to recordings on you know, YouTube that we do now. Mm-hmm. So now you can, um, you can watch, I, I can watch people's senior recitals from, from their, you know, their graduation recitals, master's recitals. You can get a really good idea of what the standard is and what the, what the, the, um, you know, what people are playing. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I make, well, I, I make, I, encourage my students to watch um their contemporaries on on youtube because you know it's wonderful i mean my my former student she gave her master's recital and i was able to be i could listen to it that's something that we couldn't do we couldn't imagine 20 years ago right um so i sort of i went there and i was a little bit naive as to what the what the the, the level was and to also the style. Growing up musically in um, Australia, New Zealand, we do have a style of a sort of school of playing. There's a very, very strong bassoon tradition in Australia. Um, you know, people have studied with particular teachers and there are, um, you know, they can trace their, their sort of musical ancestry but I would say that the start I mean there's more of a at the time of a variety of of different bassoon sounds that I heard mm-hmm. now going to um, Boston you know people it was wonderful to play in a wind section that everyone had studied with the same teacher mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's that lovely style of wind, and I'm just going to talk about Boston because that's what I about New England because that's what I what I know. Um, you know, I play in a in a section. Everyone had gone to the same school or they'd had the same influences, and I loved that the wind sections were so cohesive mm-hmm. and stylistically, and that's what I loved about going there. I felt that I really fitted in. And um, I loved playing playing second bassoon to really good good principles, and I learned a lot sort of about blending. I'd say that's what that gave me, um, and also just the technical background that they they had. I was teaching at New England Preparatory and and uh, Hart Prep oh, yeah. in Connecticut, and they have these. You know the way that scales are uh, there's such scales and exercises also long tones and reed making um, is so fundamental mm-hmm. you know you start off at um, your first year of undergraduate and it's normal to to know how to make reeds and to be playing on your own reeds mm-hmm. um, though that background is so so strong there Talk us through your entry into the professional world. What happened after NEC? NEC, I started working around 
around Boston. Around, I I got a I had a job in the Indian Hills Symphony, mm-hmm. so that was my first sort of yeah my first job was second second bassoon. I did an audition in my first year, and I play I did another audition for Boston Philharmonic. So of course I got to meet some of the local professionals. Um, Margaret Phillips in Boston was was playing the contra. So I'd sit next to her and she was just such a legend, is such a legend on Contra. And I learned, um, I think it was playing with her that really made, made me start loving the Contra. And so meeting these, these professionals, you know, that led to getting gigs around town. So I was working a lot, probably not practicing as much as I should have been and, and work and doing doing gigs but it was you know it was a, to get into the scene so I finished the masters and then was going to go back and do the artist diploma so mm-hmm. I auditioned for artist diploma at the end so that was quite a competitive audition and I think I was the first bassoon player to do it in what was over a decade mm-hmm. um yeah so the other um a previous bassoon player who'd gone um, to NEC, who'd done artist diploma, was John Miller um, in Minnesota. So, of course, I had quite big shoes to fill. And then I auditioned for, they had a, an audition for principal bassoon in Hartford for the one-year contract that was when Vance Lee had gone to Hong Kong. Um, and again, it was one of those those things. There was no... Um, I mean, I'm sure that something like musical chairs existed, but I remember going into into NEC on my first day back in the fall, and uh, I went a different route that I normally would, and I went past a a um, notice board in a sort of back corridor. <laughs> and I saw the principal bassoon Hartford Symphony. Um, and the audition was in two days. <laughs> so I went past that completely randomly. I had no reason to have taken that that route. So I I had actually done an, an audition in um, Australia during the summer and it got quite far into the audition. So I, the excerpts were sort of under the fingers. So I just took the, the bus to Hartford and crashed the audition. I stayed at a in a backpacker's because I was absolutely I had no no money. Oh God! Um, I think I had about fifty. I borrowed twenty bucks from my roommate. Oh my God! <laughs> Nightmare. With a, in a dorm with about twenty men snoring. Oh no! And had coffee coffee at KFC before the <laughs> audition. <laughs> and also, I have this um this rule that when I go to well not I mean I haven't done an audition in so long no, but when I go when I went to a new city to do an audition I'd always take the public transport to the audition so because that's just a way of sort of getting getting into the in the city that you're in there's nothing like taking the local public transport to really feel your inner place I don't know how I managed without I got a lot of rides like to everyone in the orchestra that that drove me around i'm so like the the Krent, ron and marilyn krentzman and them. um 
Heather Heather Taylor oh, um, yes. drove me, and I just I, they were so kind to me with with rides. Um, the local taxis did very well from me. <laughs> but looking back, I just I don't know why I didn't just buy buy a car because it was a one year contract. <laughs> I didn't know that I was gonna I was going to be there for for um, three. I was there for three years, but it was always this feeling of not that it wasn't permanent. So I never, I was too um, parsimonious to buy a car. Um, but they were, you know, they were really, it was such a rich time in my life. The people who I met on, you know, just sort of walking around Hartford were, um, I mean, I, I was exposed to such a different life than what I'd had growing up in the suburbs in, in Auckland. So anyway, um, I remember going to the, the audition and they had um, the, so they'd say, in, in Australia and New Zealand, usually with auditions, they'll say that they want to hear, say, Scheherazade, it's just a, um, or Rite of Spring. And they will give you the bar numbers. So they'll say, we want to hear um, Scheherazade, we want the, the solo in the second movement and the three cadenzas. Mm -hmm. They'll be very specific about what they want. But I noticed in the States, they would just say Scheherazade or Tchaikovsky 4. And so you actually should learn the whole thing mm -hmm. because that's how they catch people out in the, in the auditions. And, you know, there's some bits in, well, Tchaikovsky, I've just recently played Tchaikovsky, there's some bits in that which are just you need to practice them a lot. So I remember then they put all the excerpts up on the on the um, window, um, saying, and they said, well, we want. I, look, I can't remember what it was, but there was a little bit in. I think it was Scheherazade. Let's just say that was a tutti. And I thought, oh my goodness, I only have the soul. I've only got a uh, excerpt book and it's got the solo in it and now they want um, this um, tushy oh no <laughs> <laughs> I think the orchestra found um, the librarian well that would have been, been Ron Krenzman um, had a part that we all read from and look it was just it was just good luck for me that these they had a lot of side reading um, and it was just my very good luck that it was, they were all pieces that I'd recently played. Um, but definitely that rule of being, always having the complete part that is just ingrained, that will be etched on my mind forever. <laughs> and I, I, I tell everyone to get the part, which of course you can do, it's so, so easy now. There's no, there's no excuse. I want to make sure that we get to the things that yeah. you're doing now. So tell us about what your jobs look like now and what things you're excited about. What are, what are some projects that you're itching to tell us about? When I came back to New Zealand, that was in 2007, I'd started coming, no, 2008. Um, I played for a year in Norway in the Trondheim Symphony, um, which is right up near the Arctic Circle and I ended up loving loving it. I could have I, I could have stayed there. That's amazing. Um, 
but yeah, but I'd come, it was difficult. Actually, that was more of a culture. You talk about the different culture going to the States. It was definitely more of a change going to Norway. Um, I struggled a little bit at first, but I, I ended up absolutely loving it. Um, and it's interesting to think how my life would have been if I'd, if I'd, if that had been a permanent job. Mm. Uh, but again, that was another year, year contract. Um, I started coming back to New Zealand to be involved with this project with a composer, a Maori composer in New Zealand, Gillian Whitehead. Mm. Actually, she's Dame Gillian Whitehead, and she got a knighthood. Um, and she had written a series of pieces for um, Tangapuro, which are traditional Maori instruments. Mm -hmm. They are mainly types of flutes. Um, end-blown flute. There's a very fascinating instrument called the putorino, which is can be played as a trumpet. So that's the male voice. And then the um, female voice is the flute. So it can be played in two different, with two different embouchures. Um, and then the flute, it symbol, it's the goddess of flute music, it's Hine Rakotauri, um, who's the case moth, who's a type of moth. And the cocoon, um, it's represented in this instrument. So it's very fascinating. I could talk a lot, a lot more um, about these, these instruments. So um, Gillian was organizing these wānanga, or well, she was involved in these wānanga or workshops. Wānanga is Māori for, for workshop, um, where they would invite players of um, Western instruments to come and play with these practitioners of Tangapuro and they were living living um, Wānanga at the Marae which is the um, Māori meeting sort of uh, I guess the way to explain would be a community centre so we actually went and stayed there for a week you know that was just such a wonderful way to have to get I to learn and um, swap exchange ideas and um it was they were they were incredible and i com had commissioned julian to write a bassoon piece for to play at the idrs in melbourne mm. that was in 2003 or 2004 um, and then she wrote another piece with for bassoon and tangapuro and then um this sort of led to this amazing collaboration and that was something that was so unique to New Zealand that I felt I started going back every sort of twice a year. I went back from, I went to going maybe once every two years to going back two or three times a year and then decided that I wanted to, that it was time to move, move home. I really wanted to, to move, move home and be part of this, this, movement at this exciting time with uh, commissioning composers it's a lot a lot of wonderful composers in the country who were interested in writing for bassoon amazing so i thought this is something that i can do that i can't do anywhere else. i need to i need to be home so really it was it was i could have easily stayed in the united states and i have some regrets that I, you know, I didn't sort of, I, I missed it or got stayed in Europe, but I feel that um, coming, 
coming home was it 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 was what I what I my power. So I was very fortunate. I got um, the bassoon teaching job at University of Auckland, and I've had some um, amazing students. I mean, my students teach me probably more than I teach them. I love that. And um, you know, work with I played with the Auckland Auckland Philharmonia for a year, then NZSO for a year. It's always been these sort of these contracts, but I've never actually held held a permanent orchestra job, but I've always, I've sort of gone from contract to contract, which has really suited me. I probably wouldn't have it any other way. I've, I've played with so, I've met so many people um, and had, you know, got to play in some really great wind sections and also play a variety of different roles. So I played contra, you know, principal, um, second, and then started getting into the historical bassoon as well. So I played Baroque bassoon with the Brandenburg Orchestra in in Australia. I mean, I've been fortunate how that's kind of evolved for me. Um, I've worked hard. It's quite a lot of juggling, a lot of traveling, but really I think it's, I can look back and say that while I I feel sad for not having had a permanent you know, being in the NZSO or another, or, you know, full time, I didn't really put myself out there, you know, in terms of auditioning and, you know, really honing, honing those excerpts. I mean, I was working so much in different, in different roles that I was just busy, busy doing that and um, working. Um, and now um, having had some, some space, because last year really it gave me some time to reflect on the sort of previous decade. I realised that I've sort of been living living my dream, and I've been very fortunate. So I feel I feel really I feel so empowered now that I that I really you know I'm doing what I want to be doing and not think oh I wish I'd had I'd had a full time job or um, because I have I mean it's just freelancing or going from contract to contract. Um, so I don't think I'm any less less off than anyone that's in a, in a full-time permanent job. If that makes, makes sense. Yeah. Total, yes. Um, I, I could not so, agree more. Yeah, um, so that's been a lovely lesson to kind of realise that, I, yes, I have been, that I have, you know, been able, I've been um, successful and that I've had a good, a really rewarding musical life and I want that to carry on <laughs> um, just I think what I can say about moving moving about living here is that I feel that I make I can make more of a difference um, than what I would have had I think staying in New England also I've got very into composing so I can I'd say that I'm as now I'm as much of a composer as a bassooner so it's given me the space to be able to really um, pursue composition. You know, I could talk, I think last year really, really shook, shook things up. And I've been very anxious about, as we all are, I mean, it's been a very, very stressful time. Um, I'm so happy to, I'm so thrilled to see things are coming back in the, in the state. In North, would you say, would you say that, that things are getting better? Yeah, they definitely are. 
Mm. Uh, the vaccines, I think all over the country at this point are widely available. So if you mm. want one and you can have one, you can get one. Mm. So yeah, it's finally starting to open back up. We've been a bit uh, slower with our rollout in Australia and New Zealand. Um, so if you may that Sydney's gone on another lockdown. Mm-hmm. Um, they, it's, the case numbers are quite high. So there's currently no, I mean, the season, the seasons have been suspended. Mm-hmm. My ballet season in, in um, Melbourne has been postponed. So now currently I'm not going to be working until the middle of August which has been very distressing. Um, I went to Melbourne, we rehearsed for a week and then all the whole season was postponed because of the outbreak and they had to cap the audience numbers. So they could only have 75 in the hall. So of course the, the, they were just going to lose too much money. Yeah. Um, and that was very frustrating because I've just bought a new bassoon. Oh! You were ready to take it out for a spin. So what are you playing on now? And what would you say most people uh, where you live play on in terms of bassoon brands and whatnot? So here in Australia and New Zealand, or Australasia as we're known, the majority of professionals play on heckles. And I'd say that the instrument demographics, so to speak, are... very similar to North America. So we have um, new heckles um, playing side by side with pre-war heckles and then everything in between um, in each of the professional orchestras. And some beautiful foxes. um, Yamaha is quite popular and Puchner or Pushner. Um, I believe the debate of pronunciation rages here um, as it does everywhere else. Um, they're also very desirable and popular instruments. Um, the contraforte um, has a strong showing here. It's used in the Sydney, Melbourne and New Zealand symphonies, which are three of our very major orchestras. Um, so the, the contraforte is is very popular, um, and also, of course, with composers wanting to write for it. I am ecstatic because I have a new instrument that I love. We've just had our one-month anniversary, and I'm amazed at how easily I've adapted to it. Um, At the moment, I'm doing the constant vocal swapping, trying to find the perfect forever vocal, and I wish I had access to try more. Um, But the other day, my former teacher from Sydney, um, Gordon Skinner, who's a fellow old heckle fanatic, left me a few to try and they're promising. So my colleagues will just have to put up for another few weeks of me asking them every five notes, um, what sounds better? (laughs) We've all been there. Um, I've adored the 7000 series heckle that I've played on for the last 15 years or so, and I felt it's taken this long for me to really grow into the horn, so I wasn't seriously looking for another bassoon at all. Last year I did buy a Yamaha, as I wanted to see how I went on a modern instrument. As we can all relate, I had quite a bit of time to myself last year to think and um, regroup away from the constant gigging and travelling. Um, The Yamaha is a superb instrument and so smooth, 
but it just wasn't my voice. I definitely do recommend them though. Mechanically, they're exceptional, and to me, the good ones blow very much like an 11 or 12,000 heckle. But I kept coming back to the old instrument, and then when I was back in Australia early in the year after the longest I'd been away because of the COVID restrictions, I tried as many of my colleagues' instruments as I could for comparison, and I found that I always gravitated to the older heckles. So as soon as I'd reaffirmed that that was the style of instrument that suited me the most, um, having gone through all of this before, way back when I bought the Seven, um, suddenly and unexpectedly a fabulous one came up for sale. And all I can say is that it was love from the first note. Um, it's just a little bit bigger than my old one and somehow does feel more modern and I can really push the sound. Um, it just, um, immediately I, I just noticed that I, it could really take, take the air that I gave it. Um, yeah, it's given me a huge lift and has also come along at exactly the right time. So I'm very excited about the the possibilities for growth with this horn. Our favorite question to ask as our closing question is what advice do you have for young people who aspire to have a career like yours? Well, long tones and scales. Really, people say that there's no shortcut to being to being a, a great musician, but actually there there is its long tones and scales. <laughs> <laughs> It's just so, it, these things that you have to, to become really good are not actually that complicated. Right. Um, but I won't get into the sort of the things that I'm sure all of your guests are giving wonderful advice. Um, there's two things that I, because I knew that you were going to ask me that. One thing is that I wish that I had learned another language mm. when I was younger or several, several languages. Um, I think going to the States to, for postgrad was, was amazing. So many, so many benefits of that. But the one thing I missed out on was not being able to, to break into a foreign language at the drop of a hat, like my friend who'd gone to say Germany or France. And I think being um, bilingual is so, it just gives you so much more of a, a rich, rich experience. Mm -hmm. um, I had the opportunity to learn um, Te Reo Māori, which is the language that, um, indigenous language in New Zealand when I came back and I didn't take that opportunity. Mm. Um, I regret that and also not learning, I don't know, Spanish would have, I really wanted to learn. So I think that's very, um, I would say that that's going to um, enhance your opportunities for expression and so I yeah I regret not traveling around more when I was in the state visiting um, South America I had the opportunity to go on a tour of Jamaica with the Harvard Orchestra but I turned it down because I think I was playing with another orchestra that was doing they were doing some I think they were doing Chike Six and I wanted mm. to play the solo so I turned down a, a, um, a tour of a Caribbean tour. I mean, to play Chike Six. I mean, how silly. <laughs> 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 but, 
the people that I would have would have met from touring with the Harvard Orchestra, you know, all those those incredible Harvard people. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think look out, think outside of, you know, the the box that you're in. I think I have to some extent done a good job with that, but always think what is going to what is gonna benefit me as a as a human. Um, you know, I see, I mean, it's very important to put those hours in the in the practice room. You know, you need to lock yourself away and do that. But I do think, you know, experience the world, travel, experience other cultures. And um, my other piece of advice would be to just enjoy the moment. This is very hard to do. I spent a lot of time worrying about what I was going to do after I left school, left, left NEC, or then I left when I was in Hartford, I was worried about what I was going to do when my contract ran out, always kind of looking for the next thing Mm -hmm. and not living in the moment, Mm -hmm. like, right, enjoying what you're doing now and not worrying about the future. I I, um, remember once a former teacher came to a masterclass I was giving and said, oh, Ben, you're such a great teacher, but you were a terrible student. <laughs> no, you're someone that can be taught, but like, is good at teaching, but you can't be taught. Oh, no, but that I think hurts. Because so a lot of things I did, um, I look back and I think that I, um, I cringe at what I, um, what I got away with that my student that I that my, <laughs> I'd be so annoyed if my students did that. Ben, thank you so much for spending this time with us on Double Read Dish. It was such a joy to talk with you. Am, am I allowed to do a plug for something? For... Yeah, go ahead. If people are interested in there's some, um, I've worked with so many incredible colleagues in Australia and New Zealand, and I'm constantly learned, constantly amazed at the at the sort of depth of knowledge and experience that we have in this part of the world, there is a wonderful website. It's called www.onlinevirtuoso.com. And it is, um, you know, some of the Australian, you know, top Australian teachers and freelancers and, and orchestral players um, sharing tips about, um, you know, performance and there are videos that you can access each each clip is a, is a couple of minutes that's fantastic um, the oboe there's some wonderful oboe ones um the bassoon the bassoon clips are about to be launched um so in the next couple of months and it's a wonderful way to subscribe and then meet via the internet some of the local players um and i think it's a really fabulous resource if you're interested in what's what's going on in this part of the world. I want to give a big shout out to sounds.org.nz, which is the website of our beloved Centre for New Zealand Music. Um, This is a resource that we really treasure here. And the website is very comprehensive. It has all sorts of information about our wonderful composers, along with music, scores and recordings. So if any of your listeners are interested in programming something a little bit different on their recital or playing some chamber music um, by a New Zealand composer, then I totally recommend 
checking out this website. That's perfect. Thank you so much for joining us for that episode. And sorry for my absence in that interview for the most part. I was having internet issues at camp. So Galit took the reins on that one, but I was there for the whole thing. She was there the whole time. Silent but deadly presence. That's not, I don't know. Don't, not that. Okay, follow us on social media. Who's coming up on the next episode, Galit? (laughs) Next episode, we had an incredible conversation with Jonathan Fisher, principal oboe of the Houston Symphony. Jackie, we got to end this nerd parade. Go make reads. And write music. Oh. (laughs) Oh.